welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 323 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Salute 1. Subsequent mastering of space is inevitably connected with assembling complicated structures in orbit. Orbital aircraft stations, factories producing new materials, global complexes for weather and climate control, astrophysical instruments for universe investigation. These are the objectives for future. But even today, while planning these objectives, it is necessary to take into account the man's role in orbit. How long without harm for health could people work in space conditions? The answer to this question could be given only by the direct experiment, the experiment with man participation. Since April 1971, the Salute orbital stations have become the permanent means of space research. The first landing of Apollo astronauts on the lunar surface in July 1969 marked a watershed event for both the U.S. and Soviet space programs. In the United States, after beating their Soviet rivals to the moon, the Apollo program suddenly became a time-limited colossus in the eyes of appropriation committees. So after six successful lunar landings, the American manned expeditions to the moon were discontinued in 1972, and there were no follow-up human lunar programs funded. In the meantime, in the Soviet Union, the political inertia continued dragging forward the ill-fated N-1-based lunar program. However, leaders of the space industry, as well as their patrons in the Kremlin, had already started looking elsewhere for future goals. The Soviets eventually decided there was no point trying to duplicate the American moon landing, especially with the N-1 booster problems. Instead, they would claim to never have intended to land on the moon in the first place and deny existence of their lunar program. But the Soviets needed something space-related that they could lead the world in, as well as a place for their Soyuz spacecrafts to go. And they also wanted to one-up the American Skylab program. Conveniently, since the mid-1960s, Vladimir Chalomi's design bureau had been working on a military spy space station designated Almaz, or Diamond. However, technical problems and political intrigue stalled the project. Perhaps Almaz could be altered for civilian scientific purposes. This decision would lead to the Salyut program. Within the Soviet Manned Spacecraft Design Bureau, OKB-1, a group of dedicated top engineers conspired to salvage something useful 
in the aftermath of two failed launches of the N-1. These rebels believed they could create a civilian space station which could be developed quickly and economically. The new program would employ the hardware, ALMAZ, which had already been developed by Chalome's rival design organization. This act effectively redirected resources from the faltering human lunar program into a new stream of work, piloted Earth orbital stations, that became the mainstay of the Soviet and later Russian space program for the next 40 years. The station that OKB-1's engineers designed and launched the so-called Long Duration Orbital Station, or DOS, became the basis for the series of Salyut stations launched in the 1970s and 1980s. The core of the Mir space station launched in 1986 and eventually the Zevzda core of the International Space Station. By December 1969, Dmitry Ustinov, a powerful Kremlin bureaucrat supervising the rocket industry, signed off on the project. The head of OKB-1, Vasily Mishin, despite his opposition to the idea, had no choice but to squeeze another assignment in the already ambitious list of projects led by his organization. Working in parallel, Vladimir Chalome continued the development of the Almaz, which would be used exclusively for military goals. In record time, the OKB-1 rebels led by Yuri Semenov developed the space station designated DOS-7K. The station used the body of a vehicle from the Almaz project but outfitted with modified systems from the Soyuz spacecraft. The crews would visit the station on board a new version of the Soyuz spacecraft designated 7K-T. On February 9, 1970, the Soviet government officially endorsed the program under codename DOS-7K. As promised, in the first half of 1971, DOS-1, or Salyut-1, the world's first space station, was ready for launch. The launch of Salyut-1 was followed with five more successful launches of seven more stations. The final module of the program, Zevzda, became the core of the Russian segment of the International Space Station and remains in orbit. That was the summary. Now, the details. As I said before, Salyut-1 originated as a modification of the military Almaz space station program. And so, to properly understand Salyut, we must first understand Almaz. This is what the Russians came up with. This is the spy station called Almaz. Thirteen years in the making, the sole remaining capsule is locked away in a warehouse on the outskirts of Moscow. 
It is a closed facility, a place foreigners are still denied access. Nova's cameras were allowed inside, but only with a Russian camera crew. The Almaz capsule was divided in three sections. One section was the crew quarters, a rudimentary bed, a table where cosmonauts could sit and prepare food, a tank to sip water from. Another section was mainly taken up with the sensors. Largest among them, the Agat camera, weighing more than two tons with six-meter mirrors folded inside. And in the middle, the operations module, where astro spies could zoom down to almost any point on Earth. To show them where they were, a simple globe that depicted their point in orbit, a screen they could look at that showed them a hundred-kilometer panorama of the world below. In front of that screen, a viewfinder that could zoom in to 100 meters. We could see details that were half a meter long from 250 kilometers in outer space. For example, we could see the make of the car, if it's a Ford or Toyota. The entire station was gyroscopically controlled, designed to pivot as it passed over its target, so that when the shutter was triggered, the pictures wouldn't be blurred. And on the outside of the station, a first for manned spaceflight, a weapon, a 23-millimeter cannon that could fire on an enemy satellite that might be flying too close for comfort. Vladimir Chalome at the OKB-52 Design Bureau initially promoted ALMAZ as a response to the U.S. Air Force's Manned Orbiting Laboratory, MOL, project. MOL was widely publicized in the U.S. press in the early 1960s, which provided Chalome plenty of material to use to lobby for a Soviet response. The Almaz space station program involved three major hardware components. First, an orbital piloted station module forming the space station itself. Second, a functional cargo block intended as a resupply craft for the station. And third, a VA spacecraft, known in the West as the Merkur spacecraft, intended as launch and return vehicle for the crews, and it was supposed to be reusable for up to 10 flights. The orbital piloted station would have a maximum diameter of 4.15 meters, a mass of roughly 20 tons, and an internal habitable volume of 47.5 cubic meters. Much like its MOL, Gemini, counterpart, the initial Almaz space station design called for the launch of an Almaz orbital piloted space station and a VA return capsule con containing its initial three-man crew made it together and attached to the top of Chalome's UR-500 Proton rocket. As with MOL Gemini, once in orbit, the crew would access the lab through a hatch in the heat shield 
at the bottom of the VA capsule. After an extended stay of 30 to 60 days of military observation and photography, the crew would return to Earth by way of a VA return vehicle. Unlike the American MOL design, the Soviets designed the Almaz to be recrewed and resupplied. For this, they created the TKS resupply craft, which consisted of a functional cargo block and a VA return craft to carry the crew. Also, it would be launched together on a proton rocket. At the station, one docking port would be available to receive the TKS craft once the previous crew had left the station in their VA capsule. In addition to reconnaissance equipment, Almaz was equipped with a unique 23mm rapid-fire cannon mounted on the forward belly of the station. This revolver cannon was modified from the tail gun of the TU-22 bomber and was capable of a theoretical rate of fire of 1,800 to 2,000 rounds per minute. Each 168-gram projectile flew at a speed of 850 meters per second relative to the station. The cannon was tested at the end of the mission by firing 20 rounds when the station was operating in uncrewed mode. To aim the cannon, which was on a fixed mounting, the entire station would be turned to face the threat. The Almaz series are the only known armed crewed military spacecraft ever flown. Salyut 3 conducted a successful remote test firing with the station uncrewed due to concerns over excessive vibration and noise. Orbital piloted station number four was to have featured two rockets instead of the aircraft cannon, but this system has not been shown publicly and may have never been fully manufactured despite it being used experimentally. As man rating the VA spacecraft and the Proton rocket took longer than producing the other hardware, the first phase called for the launch of three ALMAS stations without the VA spacecraft, with the crew instead launched separately by Soyuz rocket in a modified Soyuz spacecraft. Plans called for the first three ALMAS stations to be visited by three two-month-long expeditions. This was realized fully by two missions and partially by one. However, the initial intention of launching ALMAS and the TKS spacecraft together with its crew in a VA spacecraft would never materialize during the program, and neither would the TKS spacecraft play its intended role as resupply craft. Okay, returning to Salyut 1. The basic structure of Salyut 1 was adapted from the Almaz with a few modifications, and this would form the basis of all Soviet space stations through Mir. Salyut 1 had four major compartments. The transfer compartment was equipped with the only docking port, 
which would allow one Soyuz 7K OKS, also known as the Soyuz 7KT spacecraft, to dock. It was the first use of the Soviet SSVP docking system that allowed internal crew transfer, a system that is still in use today. The docking cone had a 2-meter front diameter and a 3-meter aft diameter. The second and main compartment was about 4 meters in diameter, and in televised views showed enough space for 8 large chairs, 7 at work consoles, several control panels, and 20 portholes, some obstructed by instruments. In Salyut 1, the interior design used various colors, light and dark gray, apple green, and light yellow for supporting the astronaut's orientation in weightlessness. The third pressurized compartment contained the control and communications equipment, the power supply, the life support system, and other auxiliary equipment. The fourth and final unpressurized compartment was about two meters in diameter and contained the engine installations and associated control equipment. Salyut had chemical batteries, reserve supplies of oxygen and water, and regeneration systems. Externally mounted were two double sets of solar cell panels that extended like wings from the smaller compartments at each end, the heat regulation system radiators, and orientation and control devices. While Salyut 1 was considered a civilian station, several military experiments were nonetheless carried out on it, including the OD-4 Optical Visual Ranger, the Orion Ultraviolet Instrument for characterizing rocket exhaust plumes, and the highly classified Svensnit radiometer. Salyut 1 was modified from one of the Almaz airframes. The unpressurized service module was the modified service module of a Soyuz spacecraft. Construction of Salyut 1 began in early 1970, and after nearly a year, it was shipped to the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Some remaining assembly work had yet to be done, and this was completed at the launch center. The Salyut program was managed by Karaman Karamov, chairman of the State Commission for Soyuz Missions. At launch, the announced purpose of Salyut was to test the elements of the system of a space station and to conduct scientific experiments and research. The craft was described to be 20 meters in length, 4 meters in maximum diameter, and 99 cubic meters in interior space with an on-orbit dry mass of 18,425 kilograms. Of its several compartments, three were pressurized and two could be entered by the crew. Есть ключ на старт. Есть старт. 
Готовность 30 секунд. Протяжка 2. Есть протяжка 2. Let's move ahead to the launch of Salyut 1. I'm going to read an eyewitness account of the launch written by Boris Chertok, the deputy chief designer of the Soviet manned space program at OKB number 1. On 19 April 1971, all the participants and distinguished guests convened for the launch of the rocket carrying the first DOS. The UR-500K Proton standing on the launch pad with the DOS invisible beneath the fairing was that bundle of metal and electronics that embodied the creative energy of dozens of chief designers and therefore, for the time being, reconciled all their differences. At T minus 15 minutes, the state commission and all the guests left the stuffy service rooms and climbed up on the stands of the observation center. On such a spring night, you enjoy breathing in the air, lush with the aromas of the steppe. It seems bizarre why each of us has a bag containing a gas mask slung over his shoulder. Certainly no one wants to think about the possibility of the off-nominal situation that might occur if the nocturnal beauty standing on the launch pad decides not to fly off to a safe distance. The rocket really is beautiful under the floodlights when it is standing on the launch pad, liberated from the service towers and pre-launch commotion on the ground. T-minus one minute. All at once the conversations cease. I feel the inner tension of everyone standing at the observation post. For a few seconds, blinding light floods the nocturnal step and a deafening roar bears down on us. The rocket lifts off easily, out dazzling the stars with its own bright plume. The first DOS is on its way to space. By the time we had dashed over to site number two, reports had already come in from Yevpatoria and Moscow that Salyut, or as we refer to it, DOS number one, or 17K number 121, had entered its intended orbit. The solar arrays and all the structural elements, including the IGLA antenna boom, were deployed. At that time, we still did not realize and could not foresee that this launch had opened the age of orbital space stations. Our sole concern was the events of the next few hours and days. In our jargon, the first and subsequent long-duration orbital stations were referred to simply as DOSs. In production documentation, all the DOSs had the index 17K and were given ordinal numbers, number 121, number 122, etc. For the mass media, for the public, 
The first DOS was called Salyut, with no number. It was followed by Salyut 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, etc. TASS reports also referred to the piloted Almazes as Salyuts. After separation from the launch vehicle, the attitude control system dampened the oscillations of the DOS, and program tests began under Yev Pretoria's command. At the firing range, all the attention switched to Soyuz 10. If the test on the DOS did not turn up any contradictions, then Shatilov, Yelizhev, and Rukovishnikov would lift off into space from the first Gagarin launch site on 22nd April 1971 to visit the Salyut. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 323 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Salute One. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. In case you didn't get the hint, next week's episode will be Soyuz 10, the first visitors to Salute One. I really enjoy these Soviet missions and find them fascinating. I learn a lot each one I do. Okay, if you're looking for old episodes, the first 153 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. Once again, I am running long on this episode, but I do have an important announcement. We have reached donor thank you bonus time of the year. That's right, we have. <laughs> We are very thankful for the support we've received so far this year. Our first donor bonus goes out to all financial supporters who have contributed $100 or more this year, either by Patreon, PayPal, or check. If your total is $100 and you have not received an SRH logo magnet, email me your address and we will mail you the official SRH logo magnet as a thank you for your support. This bonus is good from now until the end of the year. My email address is mike at spacerockethistory.com. So once again, my goal here is to make sure everyone who has contributed $100 or more this year and has not already won one of these logo magnets is that you get one of these logo magnets. So send me your address before December 31st. Okay, everyone else, make sure you listen next week. There may be another surprise coming for my donors. Well, folks, as I remind you, just about every week we're trying to reach some important goals for the podcast. This year we are way behind, and I wonder if it's possible to make it by the end of the year. 
Our main goal is to reach 600 contributors by the end of the year. So far, we have reached 436, so we are 164 short. That will be tough to make before December 31st. Our Patreon goal is even harder. We are back down to 235 donors with the goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. So if you are enjoying the over 320 episodes provided here and are financially able to support the podcast, please do so. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Over the past two weeks, we had 16 new contributions, and I would like to recognize Mads G. from Denmark, who sent in another donation this year and is at the Vostok level. Matthew F. from Oakland, Tennessee, sent in another donation and moved to the Mir ISS level. Alan M. from Michigan donated at the Gemini level. Christopher L. from Australia sent in another donation this year and moved to the Soyuz level. Mark and Caroline G. from the U.K. donated at the Mercury level. Christopher H. from Nebraska donated at the Mercury level. Robert W. from Pennsylvania sent in another donation this year and moved to the commercial level. Lawrence W. from California sent in another donation this year and moved to the shuttle level. Otar D. from Norway sent in another donation this year and moved to the Gemini level. Antonio M. donated at the Mercury level. John G. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level. Zach W. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Carl S. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. John M. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Kevin P. pledged in, on Patreon at the Gemini level and earned a moon emoji. David pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Here's Mrs. SRH with the weekly donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, everyone. I am happy to announce this week's winner of the SRH logo magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Devin Wyatt. Devin Wyatt, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell us your address, we will mail this out to you. Thank you to all 436 of you who have contributed thus far in 2019. Okay, folks, that's all we have for this week. I'll try to have episode 324 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.